This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Robert Malone, it's wonderful to be back with you. Thanks for being here in the studio and taking the time to travel here to Virginia. Not at all. Uh, is this the first in-studio interview you've done? Yeah. Uh, since the, the studio's been set up, uh, I've done a bunch of hits, obviously, broadcasting mm-hmm. directly, but not having somebody here in the studio. Okay. Uh, very early, before we had all the infrastructure, there was an interview for Epic Times, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that's that'll come out in some future documentary, I'm told. I'm looking forward to it. Um, before we get on the book, CPAC, you, we, we bumped into each other at CPAC, um, and uh, interest in CPAC, but from your involvement, because CPAC obviously is a, a political event, um, and you're there um, walking down media row, and everyone wanting a piece of you. What's, what, what's that like? Um, everyone turns their head and everyone recognizes you. Everyone recognizes you. Yeah, it's especially at CPAC, mm. perhaps more than almost any other venue. And okay. this is my third time uh, speaking at CPAC. Okay. So uh, I, the first time was in Orlando, and that was a wake-up call. I, you know, I had no idea mm. that that I had this level of of recognition mm. in con- the conservative circles. Yeah, CPAC is a funny place because it's. Uh, people that are politically active that are very committed to the conservative movement in the United yeah. States. And uh, increasingly, CPAC has become almost an international hub yeah. of conservatism. Uh, so it's a biased sample. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, um, what happens in CPAC is not what happens uh, in most <laughs> places. And so it's it's a it's a special place, but a little bit weird. Yeah. Uh, what is it like? It's uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's almost surreal, mm. very odd. Uh, the uh, endorsement, uh, support, encouragement, um, and particularly the people that come up and say things like, "I felt that I was alone." Or I felt like I must be crazy, and then I heard you, mm-hmm. and I knew I wasn't. Yeah, that's really uh, that. That gives me uh, a lot of positive feedback to to think that I'm actually helping people. The adulation is a little weird, and I'm wary, very wary of it. The mm-hmm. the whole cult of personality thing yeah. uh, makes me very uncomfortable because I know how easily that can be perverted, mm-hmm. and I also know. That just because today this is happening, yeah. that has no predictive value of what's going to be happening a month from now, yeah. and it could all go away in a in a in a moment. And uh, so I, I think it's important to maintain uh, perspective. Uh, and what I try to do is focus on the mission mm-hmm. and focus on helping people. If you stay, I think if you stay grounded in a sense of and it, this term has become very trendy lately servant leadership mm-hmm. uh if if you're keeping yeah. if you what i try to do is keep in my head that i'm 
I'm in this moment because I'm providing value to people. And the moment that I lose control of my ego or, uh, or start imagining that this has something to do with anything other than this moment in time, yeah. uh, then I, I have lost, uh, my own integrity and I, and I, and I won't be true to the mission. Mm. So I, I try really hard to not let it get to my head. Uh, and of course, Jill uh, does her her best <laughs> to make sure that I maintain perspective. Uh, that's one of the lovely things about having a long time stable partner yeah. is they can keep you grounded. Servant leadership is not a term I would expect to come out of something like CPAC. That political, that that the lights are on, uh, it's showbiz, and uh, I, even sitting what listening to some radio interviews and the. Um, the the level of respect and I guess adoration that, that people have for um for what you do and yeah it's it's a little weird yeah, yeah. um it's it's there's a um kind of a folk hero aspect to it the the tension for me is that people need a role models oh yeah and yep. they kind of need heroes. Yep. And this all gets wrapped up in the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, mm. a narrative that surrounds all of us. It seems yep. to almost yep. be hardwired into our DNA. Mm. And uh, I'm I'm very conscious that there's an aspect here that's recreating the hero's journey, including the trials and tribulations yep. and the time when the hero yep. goes into the unknown and, and uh, has to come out. Uh, hopefully, uh, with wisdom that they can then share it. I mean, this is the hero's journey yeah, yeah, laid yeah. out by Campbell. And, uh, I, I find myself unconsciously recapitulating that. Mm-hmm. And I see it in many of my colleagues, yeah. uh, that, but it is so easy because I see it again and again for people to get wrapped up in, in a sense of self-importance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the other one that can really, uh, compromise people's perspective is all of us have set aside our careers. Yeah. Uh, all of us have in, in all the way down uh, the, 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 the laborer that, uh, has had their income compromised because of lockdowns. Yeah. You know, everybody has had, well, ex- except for the elite, right? We've had this massive upward transfer mm-hmm. of wealth, yeah. but for most folks, this has been really hard times. And so it's natural to want to make a buck uh, to recover. You know, for instance, if you're a, a high profile physician mm. and you've lost your practice. Yeah. Um, and so that siren song of making money mm. and uh, doing things to make money uh, can can easily lead you down pathways that you you may not be aware mm. you're walking that road until suddenly it's got you. Yeah. And I've seen that happen also. And I'm, I'm really, Jill and I have been very, very conscious of that risk. And this is why in our Substack we don't charge. Uh, people can voluntarily mm. pay, but we make the information available to everybody. Yeah, it would be uh, really neat to have uh, 300,000 paying subscribers. Uh, number one, that would never happen. And number two, really? it's, it's contrary to the mission. Yeah. I'm not Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah. Mem- memo to self. Uh, I'm not Joe Rogan. Um, so, uh, 
so I think it's it's hard but super important to stay focused on this moment in time and this mission uh, of trying to help, uh, hence the servant leader mission space. Because if you don't, it it is so easy for all of these forces to corrupt you. You have have people wanting to touch, wanting to shake your hand, wanting to engage with you, Mm -hmm. uh, wanting to be your business partner, yeah. Wanting you to do their podcast, come on their show, you know, and all of this gets monetized. Yeah. It's it's a little bit of a, a weird transactional relationship, not in your case, but mm-hmm. with many uh, podcasters like there's been an estimate that the net value of my appearance on Rogan, which I was very glad to do. It got mm-hmm. information out. It, it had an impact on the world. But for Spotify and Rogan, it was worth a couple hundred thousands of dollars wow. based on the number of hits. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, they have these simple equations. Mm-hmm. And when you hear those kinds of numbers, I didn't get a couple hundred thousand. I didn't get Zed, right? I paid for my trip down there, right? Um, uh, but but there's, um, there's money at play and there's all kinds of forces mm-hmm. that are, are really easy to... Uh, get lost in yeah, yeah and and i think that that's that's a challenge that's the problem i have with 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 moving through spaces like that like we were talking about cpac yeah, yeah. is is all of this comes at you uh and um and it's it's useful if you are seeking if your objective is to build your brand and yeah. and to monetize it, it's a window of opportunity if that's mm. what you want to do. But as I'm saying, if you if you go down that path, you quickly find yourself making decisions yeah, yeah. that uh, you know will compromise people's. They'll compromise your objectivity yeah. and your genuineness, and I yeah. think that's the key thing that I've learned through all of this is people are just craving. Um, genuine mm-hmm. there so much is synthetic in their world oh yes uh all and particularly in the media yeah, yeah. uh you know it's it's i i have somehow together with jill found ourselves because of a set of circumstances a very odd set of circumstances in this weird position of being able to influence the tide of human events yeah. in some way yeah uh and that's that's a gift and a burden yeah I want to, can I ask you a different question about your book that you haven't got asked before? My, that, that's do. the difficulty. <laughs> um, it's Lies My Government Told Me. Uh, we'll touch on uh, the better future coming uh, after. And just out just before Christmas. And I thought it was a very large book. And then I thought, actually, it's probably very small. For Lies My Government. <laughs> that's the criticism. It should be as big as the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> it was actually twice that size. Okay. And uh, when when I turned it into Tony Lyons, his his acerbic comment was, uh, "Well, this will sell well for those who need a doorstep, uh, but no one's actually going to read it." Uh, and so they went to their credit, uh, Skyhorse and Children's Health Defense mm. um, pulled together a team that just went on a marathon editing effort because everybody wanted to get it out before Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And so, unfortunately, a number of chapters, uh, particularly. Uh, chapters from the first section that were um, 
sharing personal anecdotes yeah, about what yeah. it was like to be a frontline physician, for yeah. instance, got dropped. Mm. And I regret that. Mm. Uh, but uh, that was out of my hands. And then some of the other chapters got condensed. Uh, and then the one that uh, was the hard, I could never properly rewrite was the one about mRNA yeah. uh, because for me, it's all so technical and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and it was, you know, I kept getting this feedback. Nobody is going to read this and anybody who does is not going to understand it. And so I'd make an attempt at a rewrite and then I would get the same feedback. So eventually what happened was that somebody from Skyhorse had to step in and, and rewrite that chapter and kind of make it easier reading. Uh, what, what, tell me about getting it. Get, tell me about getting it published. I didn't dare have to hold it up. I, <laughs> I, I held it up and it wasn't in. But uh, I mean, there are a couple of questions. One is what probably why write it because there's a lot of information out there, and you were already doing lots of media work, so you're getting the story out. Um, but you decide to spend. I mean, it's never done this, but I assume it's a heck of a lot of time. It's about a year that together for Jillian. Okay. Um, so the genesis of the book. And this was pre-substack, so it was fine. You were no, hey, actually, no? it was so. So that's um, that's this is intimate. This is woven okay. into the substack. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, I I'm asked by uh, uh, Tony to in in Skyhorse mm. and Bobby Kennedy yep. to edit Bobby's book, uh, the real Anthony Fauci. For him. Oh yes, uh, and that was an earlier draft. Yeah. Uh, and that was a heavy lift, mm. uh, both time-wise and psychologically. Yeah, yeah. For me, the I thought I had known a lot about Tony Fauci. I'd lived with him my whole, entire career. Uh, you know, I've been younger than him, but but uh, he's always big been the big kahuna mm. in infectious disease throughout my entire career starting from the earliest days when the laboratory where I cut my teeth yeah, yeah. was working on the AIDS vaccine mm. uh, back in 80, starting in 83. And that's a whole other conversation. Um, but... And uh, so, so I thought I had known, you know, cause I sit on these study sections mm. in the office of study section chair. Yeah. I spent a ton of time uh, hanging out in, in NIH and dealing with their stuff and, and, Thought I knew a lot of the inside scoop on on the way things are, yeah. But uh, after after the first read on Bobby's book, I was depressed for two weeks. It was just like, oh my god, the burden of of just becoming aware yeah. of of how deeply corrupted everything is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then then um, that they they liked my detailed edits. That were not just content, but also I'm a reasonable good, reasonably good editor for language. Yeah. And then they wanted me to edit again with the next version did. Uh, and, uh, then after the, you know, the big scrum and rush to get it out the door, uh, um, Tony Lyons asked me to think about writing my own book. Okay. And, uh, Jill and I talked about it. The problem is there isn't much money in publishing a book these days. Sure. And so we said, well, you know, naively, well, what would the advance be? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, modest uh, is an understatement. Okay. Or overstatement. <laughs> modest is an overstatement. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, a couple thousand bucks and we're like, well, this is going to be a heavy lift yeah. and there's no way 
we can afford to to um, take the time mm. to write this book mm. with this kind of uh, yeah, revenue else. model. It yeah. just makes no sense at all. Uh, you know, I, we do try to, we had to live on the edge forever mm. and run our, our small consulting business. And we're very attuned to yeah. uh, cash flow. Mm. As probably you are too. Mm. Oh yes, people listening. Oh, yes, we all are. <laughs> right. And so uh, around that time, Steve Kirsch. This is before the Rogan hit. Yes. Uh, so, and I was still on Twitter. Did you have the Black on... Horse interview the three of you? Did you have that interview with you and Brett? And was that before? Yeah. Rogan? So, so after, yeah, it was way okay, before okay. Rogan. Um, so. Uh, and and I actually looked up my very first podcast was in February of twenty one, okay. uh, with a, a woman named Dr. Erin Stair, uh, who who does a podcast as Dr. Eeks. Uh, and my very first podcast, it turns out, was about antibody dependent enhancement and the vaccines. Uh, so that's a kind of historic yeah, marker. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So so we'd already done the dark horse. Thing, okay, okay. Uh, which was kind of a breakthrough. And, and Steve uh, calls me up one day. Steve Kirsch can be very um, effervescent uh, at times. I had him once, enjoyed it. Enjoyed very it. enthusiastic guy. <laughs> yes. um, and he's like, and he knows that uh, we ha- I'm destroying my, I've essentially destroyed my consciousness. You're <laughs> Yeah. And, and uh, so, so Steve calls up and says, hey, there's this thing, Substack. Mm. And I've gotten on it. And he says, I've made $30,000 in the last month. And you really got to get on this. And and we were like, well, $30,000 a month, that sounds like real money to me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, this was mid-2021, was it? Or? It was like early fall. Okay. okay. Um, and uh, and I'd never heard of Substack. Mm. But maybe a little bit. You know, mm. it was... He was on the fringes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's in Substack. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it's anything real. Uh, and and then Steve calls up and says, "You got to get on this thing." And so we launched that, and uh, that's kind of percolating along. Okay. And then uh, I get deplatform. And in parallel, we started on Getter, knowing that there yeah. was this chronic risk. I was busy self basically self censoring on Twitter. Uh, to try to avoid getting deplatformed, mm-hmm. and uh, and I I posted uh, a a link to the World Economic Forum's uh, the little circular diagram they have yeah. of all their different yeah. policy positions, yeah. and a link to uh, the um, Canadian COVID Care Alliance video on the Pfizer vaccine trials okay. uh, that had the title "Safe and Effective?" question mark. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, I still think it's a fantastic, uh, video, uh, you know, covering all of the nuances mm-hmm. that were known then yeah. about yeah. the Pfizer trials yeah. and the misrepresentation and the, the deleted data and other things. Um, and, uh, and suddenly, uh, about two days before I go with Rogan, I'm deplatformed from both LinkedIn and Twitter. That was the third time I was deplatformed from LinkedIn. Steve Kirsch had Buddy, who is a vice president of LinkedIn, right. who saved me the prior two times. Uh, and I had personal, personal correspondence with him. Yeah, because it's all a Microsoft product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so um, so I'm already on Getter. Mm. 
I get deplatformed on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn just before the Rogan hit. Uh, Rogan rushes the uh, um, release, uh, accelerates the timeline. So like okay. two days after we did the hit, he dumps it on New Year's Eve of 2021. All right. Is that right? Or is it 20? Yeah. 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On New Year's Eve. Yeah. Year yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the Substack subscriptions and the uh, getter um, connections just Trickle. go boom. <laughs> uh, and um, I've never seen anything like it. And, and suddenly we're launched. Yeah. And so it was a kind of this cascade of, of events that there's no way I could reproduce it. It was just, you know, like a lot of things being in the right place at the right yeah, time yeah. and having things put in place. And uh, then, then it, then we were approached about writing the book okay. and, uh, and perplexed about how to do it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, um, uh, there was a history, you know, century or more ago in British literature, a lot of things were serialized mm -hmm. in the kind of like local little publication yeah. flyers that would be circulated in London. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, maybe what we can do is use Substack as a way to serialize the building of the book mm, okay. as, by a chapter by chapter yeah. basis. The consequence, and so that's what we did okay. of necessity. Yeah. Uh, and, one of the consequences is that because we're writing it in the moment, each of these chapters, yep. as a Substack essay, Jill and I together, mm. uh, and you know, discussing all the latest news yep. and everything on a on a you know, as you've seen us do in the morning mm. over coffee, yep. uh, it's full of of details that there is no way I could recapture. If, if I had to start writing this book right now, there's no way I would remember all that stuff. And about the same time, Bannon was saying that he he was making the point that everything is getting memory hold, and he was making yeah. he was making comments on his show, which I was on periodically, mm. that uh, the only surviving artifact artifacts of this period in time are going to be written text. That everything is going to get yeah. censored and memory hold, and we've seen that happening even with the Wayback Machine, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that uh, it's really important to capture these things in the form of the written word, yeah. and that his posse that he's assembled, these yeah. people, uh, really love uh, written text, and that there was a market for this, and so we just persevered, and uh, um, had a, a couple of quote, vacation trips where we were away from the farm uh, and and able to kind of focus. And one of them involved some people that were very seasoned, uh, experienced writers. And so we were able to get coaching and mm -hmm. feedback from them and talked about the structure of the book. And that's when it really got going okay. and uh, pulling these chapters together. And then, of course, the chapters had to be rewritten because yeah. they were written in that moment in mm -hmm. time and they have to be restructured. And then trying to figure out how to how to pull all this um, really almost stream of consciousness writing together in a way that made sense. Mm. Uh, the epiphany was to structure it using the metaphor of how a physician approaches a patient 
where, you know, when the patient comes to you, the way I've been trained is the first thing you do is you take a history and physical. So you say, you know, what is your chief complaint? Where's yeah. your, what's your pain point? Yeah. What are the things that are bothering you? And then you do some tests, you know, and you examine the patient. And then you have a, a period of time where you have to synthesize that and say, what is the diagnosis or the series of diagnoses? And what's going on with this patient? What is causing their pain? Mm. And then you have to come up with a treatment plan. How are you going to mitigate their pain? How yep. are you going to treat them for whatever their ailment and their yep. chief complaint is? And so that the epiphany was, oh, why don't we use this as a way to structure the book? Mm. So the first third is basically first-person accounts yes. of people saying, this is my pain. This is what I've experienced. This is what this has been like to me, which I think is really cool for people that haven't been at the forefront and, you know, on the front battle lines to see kind of what it's like. What is it like through Paul Merrick's eyes mm. to have his career destroyed? Yeah. Uh, you know, what is it like for someone who there's a, a chapter in there from a, a Chicago lawyer who uh, has always been a philanthropist, mm. often a advocate for liberal causes in the city of Chicago yeah. Yeah. that had bought a, a nonprofit paper and uh, had written a essay about the, the vaccine and the problems with the vaccination mm -hmm. uh, based on, you know, triggered by his own experiences in his family yeah. and what he had seen that had kind of woken him up about this and then had his own damn paper refuse to publish it and go through and edit it and everything and his kind of outrage about about that whole experience. Um, so there's just a bunch of these kind of first person, this is what I experienced, yeah, yeah, this is yeah. what it's like. And then then it was this whole chasing down every rabbit hole we could think of <laughs> about what the heck gave rise to this. Yeah. What what was really behind it? And um, uh, Ernst Wolf was a chapter that got dropped because we couldn't get his permission. Mm. Uh, he's a German economist okay. who was really way out front in uh, the theories around the role of the central banks and the economics yeah. behind all of this. Yeah, yeah. And then Ed Dowd, uh, you know, I brought that to Ed's attention. I, Ed, I had met in Hawaii uh, early on when we did a rally there mm. and kind of brought him into this matrix of I'd love to do rallies in Hawaii. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, yeah, that that was a, a, a it, it's like 10% of the population in Maui came out. Uh, it, it was one of the biggest rallies we've ever done. Wow. Early on, and then we went from there to uh, Pearl Harbor and, okay. and spoke on Oahu. Mm. Uh, but not quite as big a rally. The, the, there was some key uh, kind of uh, organizers that had done prior rallies in yeah, Maui. Yeah. And uh, so that's where we met Ed. Okay. Uh, so um, I, I sent Ed the uh, Ernst Wolf essays about uh, Ernst's uh, interpretation of, of the economics behind this. Yeah. And, and Ed was, his response was, you know, this is pretty much the way I've been seeing it, but I haven't been able to verbalize it. Mm. And this is so much more clear. Yeah. And so we ended up with a chapter from Ed okay. uh, in the book. Um, in And uh, I was very influenced in parts by things I learned from Steve Bannon. Yeah. 
in, you know, as you know, whatever you think of Steve, he has a great grasp of history. Yes, really and and he, he was able to mention some historic precedents yeah. that then triggered me. And I went back and researched those same things like yeah. events around Watergate, et cetera, yeah, yeah. and the Nixon administration and uh, other historic examples mm. that kind of tie into this whole um, uh, government weaponization of propaganda against yeah. their own citizenry. Yeah and Operation Paperclip and, mm -hmm. and that kind of Mockingbird and yep, those kinds yep. of things. Um, so so that's the middle part. The hardest part to write was the third part uh, oh, because, future. yeah, the yes. better future coming. The genesis of that part was that uh, Tony Lyons had come up with the title uh, together talking to some others in okay. the network of, of writers and mm -hmm. experienced authors. And everybody loved the lies my government told me. You know, what's not to like yes, about that on. title? That's red meat, yeah. right? Uh, but it was Bonanesque. it was so it was so <laughs> negative. It was yeah. so grim. Um yeah. and I just did not want to put out a book that was just dark. Uh and so I insisted that we put a tagline on the back. Hmm. Um, and that's hence the better future coming. And then I had to write the damn thing. I had to write what is the better future, <laughs> right? Which was the hardest part of the whole thing. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Um, so that third part is um, the prescription. What can we do about this? Yeah. And uh, it goes into uh, things that we can do about the administrative state, the corruption that exists within HHS, the yeah. revolving door, yeah. all of those kinds of details. There's um, some comments in there uh, in terms of the lies that I got from Scott Atlas from a presentation that he made at MIT, uh, which he's now kind of recapitulated yeah. in this new Newsweek article that's just come out. Uh, and so those are incorporated in there as, as key lies, these various things that, um, are clearly, you know, uh, originally thought they were intended as noble lies mm -hmm. in the, um, uh, in the historic, um, Greek philosopher's sense. Can, can I, cause, um, what is it like to be so vindicated? Cause you've spent, the last year putting this together and this was all happening before the great reveal and we'll, we, uh, we'll touch on that in a little bit over the last couple of months you were already doing the hard work and then as you're putting this out you're realizing the media are beginning to admit and catch on um so what is that like for you to put together something like this and then for the media who have attacked you continuously to say you're right. Not admit you're right. No, but... no they don't say you're no, right. No, no, no. You never say that. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So so I wrote an essay about that in our Substack. It's one of our, mo our most popular. Mm. Um, uh, I think the top one is uh, about um, about this being the greatest experiment in human history. Yeah. Yep. Experiment. But uh, and another one of the top ones is my um, open letter to the Canadian truckers. Mm. But the, my essay on what is it like to be vindicated uh, basically makes the point. Um, I, in many ways, I would prefer I wasn't. Vindicated. Yeah, yeah. It would have been a lot better if I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we didn't have this massive human tragedy. Yeah. Uh, and and it has been hurtful. Is you can't deny that mm -hmm. to be defamed uh, by the fringe conspiracy theorists, some of whom you thought were your allies, mm -hmm. as well as by 
corporate media oh, sorry. Uh, is is not a lot of fun. In yeah. uh, there's been times when I've been frankly suicidal. Mm. I, I have to be honest. Mm. Uh, particularly when people that I thought were with me then became turn on you. started attacking. Yeah. That that was really hard for me mm. to come to terms with. Uh, it's it's been a really steep learning curve to come to terms with the the kind of fundamental evil of modern media. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. uh the complete lack of integrity mm. and um uh you know ethics. Uh that's another one of the chapters is mm. is about the New York Times and my experience with that essay which appears to have been written by someone that was probably funded by the government as part of those initiatives. Mm. And right after their interview and publication with me, uh, they, they left the New York times, uh, uh, and all indications are that they did have connections with the intelligence community because yeah. yeah. they had intimate detailed understanding with Michael Callahan, his status with the CIA. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and a complete unwillingness to even look at the patents, let alone mention them in attack mm-hmm. article, mm-hmm. Uh, which has been kind of a consistent theme with the Atlantic Monthly and the other ones yep. that have tried to do. Um, it's it was really hard, I think, for Jill and I to come to terms with uh, the ethics and the fundamental evil of modern in and to be in a position, I don't want to say victimized because I hate uh, taking the role of being a victim. Yeah. And I really counsel people against doing mm-hmm. that. Uh, better to become a, a warrior than a victim. But that's been kind of my own part of my key journey is is maybe we were talking about the hero's journey early on. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the journeying into the unknown for me has been throwing myself into modern media yeah. and alternative media yeah. and coming to grips with what I encountered. Mm. How do you process that? How do you process a ecosystem that is fundamentally evil and just grinds people up? Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like their, um, you know, input for a, a sausage, oh, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, and with, with no accountability, uh, never an apology yeah. or acknowledgement of, of the evil that they do to others uh, and the damage that they do. Mm-hmm. It's just part of how they do business. That, that, that you know, there was a book that I cite in here that uh, a, a key mentor gave to me that uh, is something like The Journalist and the Murderer, I think is the title. Okay. And it's an essay about uh, the... A legal case that was brought. It was a defamation case mm. uh, by a convicted murderer against the journalist that had basically taken advantage of him uh, and, and gained his confidence and then wrote a series of very high profile but very yeah. ugly stories that yeah. they got good coverage on, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and this then was examined, this case was examined by a New York Times author uh, you know, who was a, normally a New York Times writer, uh, but then wrote a book about this, about basically the, the 
dynamic that gets set up repeatedly between mm -hmm. investigative journalists and what are really their their targets, uh, the people that they're investigating, yeah. and they they have a tendency to try to seduce you. And at first, so I would get like this happened with the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, oh, I just want to tell your story, right? As soon as I can tell you, if somebody says, I just want to tell your story, yeah, yeah. The, the proper response is click, yeah. hang up the phone. <laughs> okay, there is no other response. Um, uh, you know, they, they um, there's a, a cluster of tricks that I've now come to understand journalists mm -hmm. use repeatedly yeah. in trying to gain your confidence. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm now to the point where I'm very wary about who I talk to mm. uh, um, because even people that think you think might be your friends, there's as as I've become more high profile, I'm I'm a great target. You can it's a business model to raise outrage and come up with claims about me because uh, you you can get many people you know people love to gossip. And and uh, so anything that they can gossip about, they'll latch on and, yeah. and they'll get yeah. clicks and views and and subscribers and yeah. and all of that. Uh, very dark, mm -hmm. uh, and it's really just a, a version. It, it it it's really the same dynamic from CNN spreading fear porn about monkeypox yeah. uh, or outrage about Donald Trump all the way down to the smallest podcaster that's trying to increase their market share yeah, yeah. and their clicks by attacking somebody who is seen as more high profile. Yeah. It's, it's been an amazing journey. So do I, re I don't regret it. Uh, I would do it again was the conclusion of my essay. Uh, and it has been extremely painful uh, and it was worth it. You're probably going to have to do a, an updated version because the information is continually coming out. And what you've done is a snapshot is. of the information available. That contained change in and and this this article um in in Newsweek uh, by Scott Atlas, I mean he puts down his 10. Um I mean for you as you were going through the lives, I know you said it was the the, the better future coming was difficult, but the lies are the dark part. <laughs> when when you were going through that was were there one or two that you thought actually that was the lie at all was on or I wasn't expecting that until I really delved deeper or kind of stuck out with you. So a bunch of them. So the whole thing is a cascade of, of what? Mm. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. I thought that was a conspiracy theory, right? It just gets worse well, and worse. Yeah, it does. Uh, the deeper you go. Yeah. And, um, uh, it, it's the, the metaphor is the one from Shrek. Uh, you recall ogres are like onions. They have layers, right? Yes. That that yeah. whole storyline, yeah. which is profound wisdom. Yeah. All of this stuff has layers. And and the the shedding of uh one's naivete mm. occurs in layers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and um I'm not sure that I'm down to the stub yet. Uh there that there, there are still things that I you know, you think that the world is supposed to be fair and right and good. Yeah. Uh, if you've been brought up a certain way, mm. uh, and um, and then you encounter this stuff. So was there one of the big ones? Was early on I had a film crew come here, and uh, 
they were people that had actually traveled, one of them traveled with Trump to Davos. Okay. And uh, they kept talking about the Great Reset. Mm. And and I was I was really wary of that. I was yep. like, I don't know anything about yeah. this. I don't go to Davos. I, I really Full don't want to I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> comment on this. You know, I'll try to be nice to the film crew. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And let's just stick to the things that I do know. Yeah. Talk about the jabs and yeah. the technology and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and then, truth be told, uh, I was kind of brought into the sphere of influence of children's health defense, and uh, and I think they were a little wary of me. Uh, you know, was I the real thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, was I controlled opposition yeah. and all that? And uh, so. Meryl Nass and Mary Holland came down to visit us here at mm. the farm and, uh, um, you know, spent, spent a couple of days up at the house where yep. you're staying right now. Yep. And, uh, um, and Mary kept talking to Jill and I about, about this great reset and Klaus Schwab and the world economic forum. Yep. And, and, and afterwards, after they left, Jill was like, well, I like them, but, I don't know this Mary Holland. She's she's pretty far out there with all that. Brilliant. And and uh, but at that point we had enough respect for them. We mm. felt like we had to look into it. Yeah. And and Jill found the book, The Great Reset, mm. on Amazon mm. as a paperback and got that. And we read through it, and it was just the the logic there was squishy at best. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um. And. Uh, you know, it was real. Uh, and then we had to investigate the World Economic Forum and, and go down that rabbit hole and yeah. understand that. And that led to the Young Leaders Program. This is before the Trudeau uh, Truckers event. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had a colleague here locally mm. that uh, was working with us part-time. And we asked, and there'd been a, another group in uh, Sweden that we were aware of that had done a lot of diligence on the Young Leaders Program mm -hmm. and the WEF. And uh, so we connected our local person that we hired part-time with them. Yeah. And then they did this huge deep dive, took a couple months, uh, collating all of the young leaders. They had to go back into the Wayback Machine and, mm -hmm. and just search all kinds of different threads to create this massive spreadsheet. Uh, it's still the most comprehensive spreadsheet of all of the young leaders. And we posted this on our, on our, um, maloneinstitute.org site as a, as a Excel sheet. Everybody mm -hmm. can download it and, and search by industry or nation state or yeah. person's name or whatever and find when they graduated, who the other people were in the class, what industry they're in and, and all of that. So it's, it's all there. Uh, and wrote a series of essays about the web, which are partially condensed into the book, mm -hmm. uh, and um, came to terms with that. And then once you once you go there, then you have to look into uh, um, the Jekyll Island story and the central banks mm -hmm. and the Bank of International Settlements yeah. and uh, and you know, like I said, Ernst Wolf and the whole economics of this and in central bank digital currency yep. and then along comes uh justin and christopher freeland and their little uh reveal mm -hmm. about uh what this brave new world of finance is really going to be like uh under digital currency where um the government can just push a button and yep. you no longer have a bank account uh 
or or if you donated to a cause, it gets redirected mm-hmm. uh, or or you know not made available for that cause because of political pressure. That that you know that was all validating. Then then we then it's it's like they they the mask came off and we could see the beast. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, and yep. the whole world suddenly went, "Yeah, wow!" Um, and uh, and then they almost crashed the Canadian banking system. Right? Yeah. Do you do you remember that press conference with Christopher Friedland and Justin Trudeau where they said we we're going to drop this? Mm. Christopher Friedland looks like she's having a nervous breakdown. Um, <laughs> it's a fascinating uh, um, case of, yeah. of watching body language. Uh, um, they they. It's like they um, disclosed to us uh, a financial nuclear weapon uh, and had deployed it, uh, you know, the metaphor using a tank to shoot squirrels. They they deployed it prematurely against uh, these peaceful protests that were guilty of the sin of parking their trucks and honking their horns, right? Uh, And, and, um, uh, and for that sin, uh, they decided this was the moment to show the whole world that the Canadian banking system was not a secure place mm. to uh, deposit your, uh, you know, Chinese money yeah. if you're a Chinese heiress or whatever. Mm. Right? It was no longer a safe harbor, mm. and and then then the whole world kind of went, oh, if the Canadian banking system isn't a safe harbor, what is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I think I've heard people say it was the greatest advertisement for uh, uh, for cyber currency in the history of the world, right? For Bitcoin. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, it's it's been a long, strange trip for sure. To quote the Grateful Dead, and um, mm-hmm. another book. So we continue to push out the Substack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Jill and I debate. Uh, almost daily about whether the next book is a more personal biography because people love your journey what you yeah they love they love this the personal story of us you know we now passed our 44th wedding anniversary the other day and and you know we're high school sweethearts and that whole arc of history that's on your wikipedia Goodness, that little bit's left. Is it your childhood sweethearts? (laughs) Yes. Oh that so that's been added. Um uh, yeah, that's apparently I haven't looked at Wiki. I got so fed up with Wikipedia, and, mm. and Jill's head just explodes whenever she sees it. So we just try not to look at it mm. um, because it's been so highly edited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the fascinating backstory to that is that it's a lot of that editing has been by a person called the, a sock puppet uh, by the name of Philip Cross, which uh, there's uh, another wiki that some most people don't know about called Wiki Spooks. Okay. Uh, so that's a that's a good tip. Oh. Always good to check out Wiki Spooks. Yeah. Uh, when you're when you're dealing with the 77th Brigade or yes, yes, uh, or any of these names, mm-hmm. uh, because it's an archive of the whole intelligence community globally that people have built. It's another yeah. wiki. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they have their opinions about me too, but. Uh, they, in, if you look up the Robert Malone page on Wikispooks, they go deep into who Philip Cross is. Uh, and it, apparently this person uh, edits, it's one of the top editors for Wikipedia. They edit uh, seven days a week, basically 24 hours a day. Uh, and um, their, their personal image is literally a sock puppet. 
Okay. Uh, that's that's the clip yeah. that they have yeah. uh, for their picture yeah. as, as a, a wiki editor. And uh, according to Wikispooks, uh, this is an MI5 operation. Mm. Mm. And it's just a pseudonym for a group of people that have been, you know, they edit. Uh, I'm now to the point where if your Wikipedia page has not been raped uh, in yeah. this way, uh, you're probably not trustworthy. <laughs> not completely. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you uh, about this book, which you contributed in, Rise of the, the Fourth Reich. Um, and you're one of the contributors. But this this concept of Nuremberg trial, this concept of those who have done this, and we've seen a lot of the leaks, whether they are leaks or not, coming out, the Matt Hancock um, who was health minister in the UK. Yeah, that's the big... That's, that's the big just, one at the moment, yeah, but yeah. that's the tip of the iceberg. But this whole thing about Nuremberg trial, about uh, those who are guilty of these crimes having to pay for it, be punished, where do you think that's going to go? And do you think we're ever going to have that? So uh, one of the earliest uh, podcast recordings I did was with Reiner Pullman. Hmm. Um, a lot of people aren't aware of that. Um, when he was very early in uh, his investigations, this German yeah. lawyer who also has a license to practice in the States, I think he can, in California. Okay. Um, uh, and there was a whole group around him that were pursuing this idea mm -hmm. of an indictment for a Nuremberg II. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I interviewed with him, uh, the person immediately preceding me I thought was a little off the rails because they were citing um, the uh, U.S. Army and CIA manuals on psyops. Yeah. Of course, now we all we, we all know that that's that. exactly what's going on yeah, yeah. in the fifth generation warfare. But yeah, at the yeah. time, I thought this was just a little bit too fringy for me. Um, uh, and it shows how times change. Bought uh, into it now. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so Fulmic was the spearhead, mm. really the tip of the spear in pushing this Nuremberg to concept, at least in my experience. Yeah. And uh, it all blew up uh, uh, like about half a year ago with accusations that Reiner Fulmick was controlled opposition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on the basis of uh, sketchy evidence and inference, mm. uh, it's, it's remarkably uh, parallel to uh, the recent events with Project Veritas and yep. James O'Keefe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, there was a rejection of Reiner Fulmick. Reiner Fulmick carried forward. Uh, that committee carried forward independently, and that whole thing got diffused. Mm. I there's I'm I'm completely convinced that there actually are infiltrators. That are agents of disruption. Yeah, uh, and I've written about one of them that was originally identified by Children's Health Defense. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, that unfortunately used to work for Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I don't think he was aware of her prior history mm -hmm. activities. Mm -hmm. But but they're out there. Yeah. Uh, and and they seek and there's some very active in Europe. Uh, that seek to infiltrate and disrupt and, and destroy these initiatives. Do I think that a Nuremberg II might ever take place? That that would 
require a willingness within the European community in particular mm. to uh, allow a legal case to proceed, uh, right, um, under an international court. Yep. And uh, that's, that's as much a political question as a legal question. And I, right now, I don't see any appetite for it. Mm -hmm. I don't see any appetite for accountability no. with the possible, except what was the name of the person that's uh, in the UK that you were just referencing with these uh, WeChat or whatever? So with Matt Hancock, who Matt Hancock, was the health right. secretary. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so Matt Hancock, I, I, if there is any accountability, being the cynic that I am, having yeah. spent too many years dealing with DC, it will be some convenient fall guy yeah. that'll be thrown under the bus. And Matt Hancock kind of fits the profile. He fits that kind of useful idiot. That's kind of what he's been portrayed as. And he went and looked at celebrity status and they sent him on to, um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And he was there and then he came back and it looked as like he was being rehabilitated. And suddenly all this information comes out and he's low enough to throw him under the bus right. and save the government. Yeah. And the, the question is, um, will will people be satisfied with the bone? Mm, yeah. Uh, and uh, will the the thing that is pending uh, that I'm hearing about is that um, some of the large NGOs, non governmental organizations mm. that have played a key role in this are are now being clearly identified for the uh, activities that they have engaged in. Okay. That have, I'm choosing my words, uh, <laughs> that have contributed to the gross mismanagement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether it's uh, social distancing, lockdown, mask use, or that thing, mm -hmm. the vaccine products yeah. uh, that is so controversial right now. But I think that. Uh, I, I don't think there are many who can uh, credibly deny the governmental overreach around the lockdowns and uh, social distancing and mask agendas, masking agendas, yeah, the shutdown yeah. of churches here in yeah. the United States. Yeah. Those those are all clearly government overreach. Yeah. And uh, the the uh, I argue that the um, weaponized. Uh, um, denigration of early treatment is is responsible for, at a minimum, hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. Uh, and so, um, if you are one of these large NGOs and you're facing a public relations nightmare, uh, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, and um, or if you're a American political party. And uh, you're facing uh, congressional inquiries about, and, and if there was to build enough momentum, mm -hmm. that this is one of the lovely things for the administration in terms of the logic that uh, for democracy to survive, there must be censorship, yeah. Yeah. right? Is, is this media control, this yeah. massive profound level of corporate media mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. yeah. They can they can shape reality. Yeah. Uh, um, as as former CIA directors have identified as a specific objective yeah. of being able to shape reality and, and craft public opinion.
So they, they clearly can do that now for a large fraction of the population and they have been successful in doing it. Yep. So if there is sufficient momentum where the natives get restless, uh, then the logical DC strategy would be, as you say, throwing somebody in the bus. Mm -hmm. Who would, who would be large enough to deflect a criticism from, uh, um, more senior currently serving government officials? and uh, uh, leaders of large NGOs. And uh, I, I think that Tony Fauci is the one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and he's uh, you know, getting a huge pension, mm -hmm. made a huge salary. His wife is still is in NIH head of bioethics. Uh, he, he, but his power base of being able to influence as as he has done, there's there's clear smoking gun evidence of uh, paying off of virologists with very large grants, yeah. nine million dollar grants, to flip their story about the lab leak, for yeah. instance. Yeah. And his intimate involvement in propagating the falsehoods around the um, natural origin of this virus, mm -hmm. uh, the well documented interactions with between him and Jeremy Farrar uh, and the use of burner phones yeah. and all of this franticness around trying to cover up things in the initial phase uh, it just it just reeks of, of complicity at a minimum and an awareness and, a, and an active attempt to uh, obscure truth mm. uh, so uh, does you know do do we get to a point where there's enough of a concern? that um, someone has got to get thrown under uh, in a more global sense. I, I don't know. It could, it could be. A lot depends. I, I, my sense is there's more anger brewing in the EU mm. than there is in the United States. I think yeah. the, it's, it is funny way the uh, United States has become so jaded yeah. about their politics yeah. That there is a kind of a numbness. Of course, they are mm. manipulating things. Of course, we can't trust them. Of course, they have lied to yep. us. What else would you expect them to do? And everybody just kind of passes it off as you know normal business practice yep. in D.C. Uh, in in the kind of normal kabuki theater that D.C. is famous for. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, but but I'm hearing uh, in my you know, brief travels that I'm always susceptible to um, confirmation bias, you know, being around people who are activists or yeah, yeah. Are, are awake, then it makes you think that everybody is. But um, because on, in Europe, I mean, you'd everyone, my worry is that there'd be a, a couple of medium to lower profile figures who or maybe one person. But being in Europe, I walked around and, and looked at um, the museum there, all the talk of the trials, and it was to punish those who had committed wrong. It wasn't to punish one person and use them as a scapegoat, everyone who did wrong. And I want them all punished. <laughs> so I don't know if we'll get to that point. I think except they'll the, get a pass. Except the people that are guilty are so, it's such a large group. I know, I know. And yeah. we don't have, yeah. one of the things, the dynamics in Nuremberg 1 is, uh, you know, victory is a uh, uh, History is written by the victors, yes. right? Yeah. And so we had the allies uh, 
um, doing the prosecuting mm, yeah. and the vanquished yeah. uh, were the were the defendants. Yeah. Um, here we have uh, the world leaders are the guilty, right? Who who is the equivalent of the conquering allies? Mm. There's nothing like that. Mm. Um, there is there is you know these transnational organizations uh, and the capital behind them yeah. and uh, their various uh, organs uh, of of influence and control. Uh, and they're all still there. They're all still fully empowered. Yeah. Uh, why, you know, they're there. I, I don't see how uh, we end up with an environment where there is political appetite for accountability. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, you know, and that's that was my point in the Carlton Club yeah. to the yeah. conservative MPs was if, if you don't uh, release the pressure, functionally and and acknowledge the harms that have been done mm-hmm. and and seek to provide compensation and restitution and uh, some pathway to recovery for the harms that have been done economically yep, and yep, physically yep. medically uh you risk an upswelling of anger that yep. you cannot control yep. and the longer you postpone it the higher the probability that there is going to be some abrupt event yeah. where where people's tolerance is exceeded. Yeah. And uh, there seems to be the belief that we're never going to reach that because we have so much control over information mm-hmm. that uh, we don't have to worry about it. We can yeah. completely control the narrative. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that uh, we're going to be able to be held accountable because we'll just... Uh, find ways to diffuse it or yeah. deflect it or whatever. And I got to say it, that the data suggests they're right. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's why I've been trying so hard to message. And it's a, it's a tight wire for me mm-hmm. because of the accusation that I'm a controlled opposition to try to use, you know, you were talking earlier about, the kind of burden of responsibility mm. of having this level of uh, yep. profile and recognition yep. um, and my desire to use it for good yep. and to use it for healing. Yep. And uh, our society has been torn asunder. There's no mm. hiding that by the events. And if they, if the more that people become aware of what has been uh, done to them, uh, the more likely we are to have social unrest and disruption and all the consequences of that. Do we want revolution? Mm-hmm. Is revolution a good way to change? Is revolution a an appropriate response? to? Because a lot of people want it. Yeah. They are angry yeah. and they want to fight yeah. and they want to punish yeah. and, uh, and they want to hate. The hate level is oh, just... Yeah. So high, and it's it's like a monster. Yeah. That's why I love uh, the um, uh, Yates, the Second Coming, uh, the the beast slouching towards Bethlehem mm-hmm. to be born. Is this this upwelling of hate, yeah. and uh, it it is it is you know slinking along, looking for a target, mm-hmm. and uh, I I don't think that's yeah. 
uh, that gets us to the better future, right? And uh, and I, you know, if anybody understands uh, how sucky it is to be um, subjected to the the propaganda and um, the attacks and vilification would be me. Yeah. Uh, you know, not belittling anybody else, but certainly I've experienced mm -hmm. that in its full glory. And uh, I don't forgive my persecutors, but I don't hate them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody early, you know, I've had so many people counseling me, uh, you know, hate, hate the process, don't hate the individual. Yeah. Uh, hate the culture, maybe, but don't hate the person. Hate the sin, uh, not the sinner. Yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of this does come down to biblical wisdom yeah, yeah. in a strange way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, and all the the you know all the logic of evil mm. and uh, um, uh, and the you know many levels of hell and all those metaphors. Uh, so I can fully understand people's pain and anger about uh, having to do with how they've been treated yeah, yeah. and the, uh, you know, this logic that was propagated um, functionally advocating for concentration camp, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. isolation, yeah. isolation in home, the damage to business, uh, you're not being able to worship mm -hmm. in church or to congregate uh, the, um, uh, direct targeting, you know, this is a, this is an epidemic of the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are responsible for killing your grandmother. Uh, the, the children, unmasked children are responsible for killing granny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all remember, and that's one of the things that's in the book is it, it's captured as one of the Easter eggs for the aficionados is the Yale University prospective randomized clinical trial mm. that tested in 10 separate randomized groups messaging for what would be most effective. Essentially, they clinically tested the propaganda messaging for uh, before they ever had a jab, before they ever had a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. They tested the propaganda messaging that would cause you to be most likely to take a vaccine and to convince other people in your social circle to take a vaccine. Okay. They, they tested that through a prospective randomized clinical trial wow. at Yale, which is, it's not disclosed who funded it. Mm. Okay. It's like 600 people. That's not a cheap date. Okay. A 600 person, yeah. uh, randomized clinical trial with a six month follow up is a, you know, a minimum of a few million. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Could be more than that, but it's not a cheap date to, to run that study. Somebody, dropped a lot of money on Yale to figure out the right propaganda messaging. And it's from that that we get the, you know, the stuff that you saw deployed on CNN with Sesame Street, oh, yes. that big bird, uh, right? Is, was it's all pre-tested. Okay. Yeah. And, and what it, what it is, if you unpack it, is it's, uh, it's surreptitious advertising mm. by the government uh, or a uh, unlicensed experimental medical product yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to be deployed in children. I mean, when you if you if you go forty thousand feet, look down, unpack it. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff that's been done 
is obscene. And it, it certainly merits anger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to be told that you're responsible for somebody else's parents' death is grossly irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and incre- it's violent. It's, it's, it's violence against people. And it's totally understandable that they're pissed off mm. and want retaliation, yeah, yeah. want that Nuremberg, yeah. want to see people, you know, hanging from trees. Uh, and the problem is that if you, number one, that kind of anger will just destroy your soul. Mm. It will just corrode you. It's like acid. Yeah. Um, and the other problem is that if you keep that anger inside of you, you can never reach those people that are in that persuadable middle. And, you know, the, those that are awake, like those that we're probably just talking to, I don't think anybody else is going to listen to this. Um, yep. Those that are awake, we're basically preaching to the choir, uh, um, uh, are already convinced. So all we're doing is reinforcing them in many cases. Yep. And, and they may be, 20 to 30% of the population, that is not a majority. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't win elections with 20 to 30% of the people. Yeah. Somehow we've got to get, you know, there's the, as Huxley, we were just earlier going over that video yeah. of Huxley from 62 in that mm-hmm. interview in which he was presciently saying 20% of the people are completely resistant to hypnosis. 20% of people can be hypnotized with a feather, basically. Yeah. And the remaining 60% are in a gradient between those mm-hmm. two. And he argues that this is good for society. Mm-hmm. That society needs some fraction of people that are easily convinced to go along with whatever the narrative is or the thing or that the society wants. Uh, and it's useful for society to have a fraction of people who are never able to be convinced that are always basically a bunch of stray cats mm-hmm. going their own way. These are the libertarians. Um, and then the rest to be in some spectrum. Of, he, he makes the case this is adapted yeah. uh, in terms of social organization, which is why it's probably there, um, innately maintained in, in adaptive balance. But the point is that those of us that are in the difficult to hypnotize and awake group uh, aren't going to win yeah. if we just hate and hold anger in our souls mm-hmm. As we can never convince those that are in the persuadable middle yeah, yeah. unless we approach them with an open heart. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, you know, said repeated, this is, you know, lesson from years of consulting. Uh, no one will trust you if you don't trust them. Mm. No client will ever confer trust on you. Yeah. Uh, if you approach them uh, from the base of assuming that they may be controlled opposition or whatever the thing is, right? Um, uh, this is the problem with the whole storyline of controlled opposition. I know of a high profile person that leads a major bona fide anti-vax, mm. uh, group, a very successful one who makes the case that, well, at least those that are asserting that others are controlled opposition are thinking. Uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, and that it's adaptive to always be questioning whether somebody else is controlled opposition. The problem with that is that that drives complete breakdown in society. Because if nobody can trust anybody, then um, we cannot exist as a social group. 
right? And and the, the trust, I think, is the foundational thing. Mm. That's why it's so harmful when it gets broken in a marriage or any per, interpersonal yeah. relationship, yeah. right? Is you know, once trust is broken, the, the relationship is gone. Mm. The only thing you can have left after that is some sort of a transactional yeah. thing, yeah. right? Where where um, you're doing business, but um, even then, that becomes exceedingly hard if you lose trust. So I I think this is this is the problem that we now face: is how can we trust the people that have done this to us? How can we open our hearts? And that gets to this, as we were just saying, these these fundamental um, religious and frankly Judeo Christian ethic based yep. uh, relationship uh, guidance mm-hmm. that we've required over millennia. Um, whether it's divinely inspired or just the product of, of human society mm. and collective wisdom over you know millennia, whatever it is, uh, the idea that you you have to forgive uh, in order to um, heal. And I, one of the things, because I've I've had many times in my life where I've been hurt by people doing mm. stuff. You know, the, you, if you know my story of the origins here and my mm. nervous breakdown of the salt mm. and all that mm. you know there's a lot of things i have to be angry about uh and there are times when i have wished for revenge mm. but uh with the tincture of time and the little you know wisdom from the uh, living the the i i love the saying the person who goes seeking revenge should first dig two graves um, if you if you seek revenge, it will destroy you. Yeah. You may or may not succeed in destroying your opponent, mm-hmm. but you will definitely lose your soul. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I think I, if we're going to heal as a society, even just to the simple transactional level of building a political majority so we can hold the bad guys responsible and try to make it so this doesn't happen again. You know, try to put laws in place so that we can't have government overreach like this. Try to change the laws so that we make it explicitly illegal to breach, we were just talking about Nuremberg, uh, the Nuremberg Accord-Helsinki Agreement, uh, the the Belmont Report, the Common Rule, these fundamentals of medical ethics that have just been thrown right down the garbage um, incinerator uh, as if they mattered not at all. Uh, so casually, we mm-hmm. discarded them. Uh, I, which was the thing that really, when people ask, what did, what did you, you know, what really red tells you? One of the key things was this willingness to just throw away the fundamentals of biomedical ethics that we've seen. It's all justified, of course, mm-hmm. because it was such a public health crisis yeah. that we couldn't afford the morality of following uh, um, uh, well-established biomedical ethics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that that's the other thing about this, Jill points out a lot, is um, we are paying for these public health officers. We're paying for these leaders yeah. that were supposed to guide us uh, and we're supposed to be trained and experienced and seasoned to the point that they would not overreact, to the point that they would provide us with a mature, appropriate uh, response to a true threat assessment. Mm. And instead, they they lost their minds. 
they were consumed apparently by fear, greed, I don't know what, but an appropriate public health response was not what we got. Yeah. We did not get what we paid for, yeah. right? And I think we have a, a justifiable cause mm. Uh, to complain about this, right? Oh, yeah. This is why I, I just loved um, being in Mexico uh, last week and testifying in the Senate is, um, you know, we we all have our stereotypes about different nations. Like we can all agree and and uh, want to uh, poke at the Italians for mm. their corruption, right? Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. a universal, uh, yeah. you know, the Germans have certain characteristics, the French have certain characteristics, mm. Uh uh, and there's a whole joke about that and and the British cook um right uh but uh but uh, what the Mexicans are not supposed to be um by stereotype a uh, mature uh political organization that's not the stereotype mm -hmm. and yet the government, in Mexico, and the president in particular, saw what was happening and uh, recognized that there was a lot of propaganda being pushed. And maybe it's, you know, being a Latin American country that, that I don't know if you, in, in the UK, they, they know this little saying, uh, poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States. Um, uh, <laughs> right? Um, there's there's wisdom in that, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, Mexico has seen uh, American shenanigans, the United yeah. States shenanigans, their entire history, right? Uh, they, you know, the truth is we stole California from Mexico. Yeah. I mean, that's what we did, right? Um, and so, uh, for whatever reason, they were able to provide to their populace a much more mature response. Yeah. And to not uh, engage in these egregious breaches of uh, of um, sovereignty mm. uh, and freedom, uh, and allowed the continue and they it's not that they the outcome wasn't that great for Mexico. They're at, near the top of overall mortality, mm. but they have a population that is uh, quite obese. Um, in general, uh, uh, has a lot of uh, kind of pro-inflammatory diabetes or pre-diabetes, the things that are known to be risk factors. Uh, and they lost a lot of people. It's strange, though, in Mexico, there are subpopulations like um, people that are more genetically the old uh, Mayan uh, native Indian populations mm -hmm. which tend to not be obese. They tend to be shorter, yeah. thinner people had virtually no mortality. Mm. Um, so in any case, Mexico is an example that that um, leadership did not have to overreact like they did. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, people don't talk about that. What the heck happened here? Yeah. Why did that? I think this is one of the, the discussions we have to have is why did the Western governments, particularly the Five Eyes Nations, yep. but also Austria, um, overreact like mm -hmm. this, uh, and um, why why was it considered acceptable to deploy military grade psyops yep. on civilian populations by these countries that 
you know, those in the, in the, they're really all the British tradition, you know, even America, we mm -hmm. still go back to the common law and Magna Carta. Yep, we're still yep. rooted in British law. Um, and the stereotype was that, um, Great Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the United States were all so civilized, uh, and freedom loving. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet, uh, they, went totally overboard. Yeah. What the heck happened here? Um, I, I think that's the African states didn't fall for that. It's true. Um, not even South Africa kind of gave lip service. Mm. But my understanding is in South Africa, vaccine cards, yeah. which, which are freely doled out and have no relationship to whether or not one <laughs> took a jab is, are the norm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we, we, this, as you point out, this book is a starting point. Yep. It's, it's a, it's a way to help people along the journey and make their own assessment, which I, I think any thinking person has an obligation really to their children, to society, mm -hmm. to try to process what has happened here and think through what, what is it that we want to do about mm -hmm. it? Because otherwise they're just going to continue to do it to us. It's it's the power of propaganda and fifth generation warfare technology and information control and the logic that um, it's necessary to preserve democracy, to have censorship. How perverted is that? Yeah. Uh, um, all of these Orwellian things and and you know you're you're here visiting us from the UK. We I think here. In the United States and in the West in general, we owe uh, a huge debt to British culture and British intellectuals. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, um, uh, Huxley and his uh, and the one and the person that he mentored, Orwell, mm -hmm. uh, and their and their prescient uh, awareness of of where this thrust towards a centralized global government was going. Mm -hmm. Um, that's captured in so many of the UN Charter and so many other documents from you know, back in the 40s. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I, one of the, one of our followers pointed out to me that I'm very indebted for, uh, that in an early edition of 1984, Orwell wrote a foreword in which he predicted the rise of a pharmaceutical state in which we would, uh, all be um, pharmaceutical control mm. to become passive and acceptance. You know, and it, I think a case can be made that we're already doing this with our children, abuse of Ritalin and things like that, particularly our boys. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, that, in his opinion, the only way to avoid this as the eventual outcome of the totalitarian uh, state that he was envisioning, this totalitarian pharmaceutical state yeah. specifically, yeah. okay, was um, to push towards decentralization, which is one of the key mm. uh, components in the in the last section of the book, is various examples of intentional communities yeah. being yeah. formed in Italy and yeah. and uh, the need to you know grow your own food and, mm. and become more self sufficient. Yeah. Uh, and this this is what Orwell believed was the only way that we could escape this dark totalitarian pharmaceutical future that he envisioned we were being driven towards. 
um, what what a gift! It's it's so unfortunate that we haven't paid attention to that. Let's try in. Maybe you know. Hopefully, it's not too late. Well, I appreciate you giving me your time in the middle of slotting into the middle of a hectic schedule, as I know you have all the time. Um, Lies, my government told me you can get it as a hardback. You can get it as an ebook, and also to those watching, if you well, of course you will have signed up to Doctor Malone's Substack, but do consider clicking that button where you can actually pay for the content. I think it's vital that we all have learned to consume information for free, but there is a cost actually putting that information out. And um, one way, I think probably the easiest way people can support you and what you're doing is simply click on that and to turn your free subscription into a paid subscription. you may want to say that, but I can happily <laughs> say that. I, I, I don't, I, I'm really poor at, at shopping for money. Um, <laughs> I'll show my for you. <laughs> but but thanks for saying that. And and uh, it has been fun. And thanks for coming and visiting. Thank you. Dr. And, and Thank I you. hope you'll be here again. Uh, wife permitting. <laughs> I'm, I'm positive wife will permit. Uh, she, she, you know, as as you know, my wife is, is a dual citizen of the U.S. and U.K. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she always likes to have folks uh, visit us mm. or, or chances to interact with people from the yep. UK. She yep. just is like her native culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thanks for coming. And, and uh, thanks also for your courage. Mm. You've been right at the forefront politically and in, in speaking out in a very challenging environment. And I, you know, as I've come to learn, it's even more challenging in the UK than it is here in terms of the censorship and oversight and pressure mm, from the government. Mm. It is. But you do, as you say, you do what you do. It's in front of you. And you learn from great mentors. And people. Ah! <laughs> Thank okay. you. Very well. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.